Matthew chapter 2 this evening. Uh, I'm doing a little series uh, in these Sunday evening services on some of the characters around Christmas. I've done this before with some different characters that I've looked at. And, uh, but, uh, I was really kind of stirred again as I was reading through some of the Christmas story and just looking at all that's involved there. There's fascinating stories around that. And, and we looked at the, the Magi, you know, um, last week in men who were seekers, wise men still seek him, which is an old course expression. One of the very first, just a totally unrelated side note, one of the very first dates I went on with my wife was an old railroad that they used to have in Carver, Massachusetts. And uh, the owners were Christians, and they used to dress it up, and it was just a little steam engine that went around in a little loop, and you could ride on it for $5 or something. And so we went on it, and it had that sign, wise men still seek him. And so to me, it's kind of plastered in my mind because we started dating uh, in December, and so uh, it was just something I always will remember, but it has nothing to do with the sermon. Anyway, Leazo Tokes, very interesting man in history I, he, in Romania. He was a pastor who was mistreated. He was tortured, he arrested. He actually challenged the Romanian authorities to kill him. They were, they were, they were threatening him because he's preaching the gospel and his cassette tapes, uh, now let me help some of the younger people in here. This is how we used to communicate with like music and, and spoken word before we had like, oh, I don't know, the internet and things like that. Had circulated throughout Romania. And he had actually pleaded with them. He said, if you kill me, my blood will seal that and they will spread far quicker than they will if I'm alive. So they refused to murder him. They actually released him. But it was his treatment that had outraged the country and finally brought a, uh, brought in 19... 89, the uprising that would bring down Ceausescu and the communist government that had ruled Romania since 1945. It was very interesting that he tells the story that he was trying to prepare a Christmas sermon for a tiny mountain church where he had been exiled. State police were rounding up dissidents. Violence was breaking out across the country. Afraid for his life, he bolted the doors and sat down and read the stories out of Luke and Matthew. Unlike most preachers who would preach in their church on Christmas, he chose, unlike most pastors uh, who would preach in his church, he actually chose the text describing what we're going to do touch on tonight Herod's massacre of the innocent. The single passage spoke most directly to his parishioners who lived in oppression and fear and in violence and daily plight as the underdogs. The next day, Christmas news broke that Ceausescu had been arrested. Church bells broke over joy over Romania. 
He goes on to say another King Herod had fallen. All the events of the Christmas story now had a new brilliant dimension for us. A dimension of history rooted in our the reality of our lives. For those who had lived through them, Christmas Day 1989 represented a rich embroidery of the Christmas story. When the time of providence of God and the foolishness of human wickedness seems to as easily comprehend as the sun and the moon over the timeless Transylvania hills. For the first time in four decades, Romanian churches celebrated Christmas as a holiday. And fascinating story to think about. But what caught my attention is here's people... They lived under oppression. They lived under a tyranny. And, you know, I, uh, we were at the market yesterday and, and these young students, deceived little creatures they were, were talking. They were, you know, do you want to end poverty in Monroe County? I'm like, tell me your story. They're communists. And I told him that to his face and he got, I'm like, hey, I lived in the former Soviet Union. Don't try to sell that to me. I could, I can introduce you to people that'll tell you, and it don't work. Cause there's this little problem called human nature that gets in the way. But anyway, some people are threatened by Jesus. And that's what Ceausescu and the whole Romanian government were threatened by this little pastor who had simply preached the gospel. And began to try to affect a nation. We're going to look at a man, Herod. I've called this sermon, Herod was deeply disturbed. And I was searching for a title. And, and so, uh, as I sometimes do when I cannot, when a title doesn't come to me, sometimes I'm trying to think of a witty little thing. If I, that doesn't work, I go to the text. And this portion jumped out at me. King Herod was deeply disturbed. And so I want to consider this with you because Jesus, to most of us, he's exciting. We love him. We're thankful for him. But to some, he's a threat. And I want to consider this with you because at Christmas, I think it is worthy to visit. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the new Born king of the Jews, we saw his star, uh, we, uh, we saw his star as it rose. We have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. As was everyone in Jerusalem, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judah, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for the private meeting with the wise men and learned from the time when uh, when the star first appeared. And they told him, Uh, And he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him 
2. To put this in perspective, uh, Bethlehem would be about as far from here as Greece would be. Greece the city, not Greece the country. It wouldn't be that far from here. It's about a five-minute drive without the border check. I want to think with you it's the thought that some people are actually threatened by Jesus. King Herod, just for history, was called, this King Herod was called Herod the Great. His sons would actually be called Herod and have different names, Herod, and uh, which Jesus would stand behind before 30 years from now, was actually Herod's son, Herod the King Great's son. And there was a whole bunch of politics. He actually had three sons and had made a deal with Augustus, the emperor, to divide up his kingdom and give each one of his sons a different portion of the kingdom. And uh, in that, of course, we know that one of the kings actually then committed adultery and married uh, his brother Philip's wife and, and how all of that was happening. But as far as Herod as a politician, he actually was... He was a great socialite, a socialist. He had been a king for 40 years before Christ was born. He had kept order. He developed certain things. He had even improved the temple, which gave him favor with the religious leaders of the day. And, of course, he did this by raising taxes severely. He taxed the people to the point of almost starvation and then, as any good socialist would do, gave them a few morsels back and made them grateful for what he was giving them. He lived in Judah. He kept peace with Rome. Augustus was very happy with him because he paid his tribute and kept the peace. He controlled Jerusalem and the entire Judea region with a heavy hand. He was also a very paranoid man. He had actually, in time, would would have his mother killed, his wife killed, and three of his sons killed. Anyone he considered a threat, he would kill. Then comes these wise men talking about a Messiah that's been born. And we'll read on. Many of you know King Herod would kill the young boys of Jerusalem under two years old. Our text tells us in verse 3 that King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. Now, we used to use the, I don't know if it's still, you know, slang comes and goes in fashion, but if someone was crazy, a little bit weird, we'd call them disturbed back in my day. Like, they're disturbed. I don't know if that term still resonates the same way it was, but you know what, an individual, probably not in our politically correct and, uh, you know, every, you know, uh, overly social, uh, overly, uh, sensitive society. Probably can't call anybody disturbed now. 
The texts in like New King James and such say he was troubled. American Standard Version and such. The Greek word literally means to cause an inward commotion, to take away calmness of mind, to disturb quietness, to make restless, to stir up, or to trouble. And it's very interesting that some people, when they hear about Jesus, they're troubled. They're disturbed. Because they're afraid Jesus is going to interfere with their plans and their agendas. And he will. You would think as a Jew, I mean, if you follow through the Gospels and such, The 12 apostles actually believed that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. He was going to kick out the Romans. He was going to end the occupation. He was going to usher in uh, freedom for Israel. They actually believed that when he spoke of restoring the kingdom of God, that they thought this is the nation of Israel. I've mentioned before that uh, my wife and I, we're privileged to pastor overseas for numbers of years, and we lived in two different countries, Lithuania and Ireland. Both were occupied for long periods of time by their big neighbors. And how even in Lithuanian, they actually have a word for book smuggler, that when the czar occupied Lithuania, one of his goals was to stamp out the Lithuanian language. You would think that they would want their freedom. You would think that if he heard that a king of the Jews was born, the leader, this is a baby. I mean, we got some real cute babies around here, don't we? I mean, they're starting to get toddler babies, but they're still getting, they're, right? They're adorable. And there's more on the way. It's kind of cool. But he's disturbed by a baby. Jesus said, don't imagine, this is Matthew 10, 34. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And what he means by that is that he is a polarizing figure. You can be neutral towards a lot of things in life. I meet people, they're neutral towards politics. They could care less. They they really don't care. They're very neutral towards it. It just doesn't... Them. There's people that are neutral towards all sorts of things in life. You meet people that they have a passion and they, you know, they'll talk about their passion. I know I do. I, yeah, it's human nature. You talk about things you like, things that interest you, and you talk to people that have just zero interest in what you're talking about. But you cannot do that with Jesus. Can't be done. And as a result, some people don't want him to interrupt their sin. Some people don't want him to interrupt their agenda. They don't want God 
involved. As one man used to say about the post-rapture earth, the tribulation that will come, is that people will get what they want, a world without God. But the problem is, they're not going to want what they get. Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee. He goes into the Gadarean is there, and the man who is filled with many demons and lives in the graveyard, cuts himself, howls at the moon, freaks out, you know, women and children. You know, he's a scary individual. Jesus sets him free. And the people of Gadaria, Mark 5, 17, and the crowd began to plead with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Can you imagine that? Jesus, go away. Don't bother me. You're disturbing me. It's what revival's for. Revival is to disturb people. You know, uh, when we did haunted houses, the joke of a haunted house is, we want to scare the hell out of you. But that's literal, not figurative. Because you can't remain neutral. Jesus is going to disturb especially people with their own agendas. What fascinates me is that people who don't want to be disturbed can be some of the most religious people on the planet. It is amazing. I don't know if they still do it, but back in the day, the mafia would always go to church. Catholic church, but they would always go to church. Herod was smart enough to play both ends. It said that Joseph Stalin understood this kind of principle. He actually was studying, I don't know if you know this in his history, he actually was studying to be an Orthodox priest and left the seminary and went into politics, became the Secretary of the Bureau, and then eventually rose to the leader after the death of Lenin. But what's, and was a very cruel man. Religion had been banned from Russia, from the Soviet Union. There was no churches. This is what Ceausescu was a part of, that eastern bloc of communist nations. But then World War II broke out. And all of a sudden, people began to pray for Comrade Stalin. And so he opened the churches again, as long as he could use that to his advantage. It's very interesting how some people want to use the church to their advantage. Not to be saved, not to be right with God, but to their advantage. He, Herod's able to talk to the priest. What does the scripture say? 
He goes to the wise men, has a private meeting with them, learns when the star first appeared, and then he says, you go to Bethlehem, you search him out. I want to worship him too. You lion dog, you don't want to worship God. But he can turn on the religiousness. A danger or a issue of life that you've got to learn is don't confuse religiousness with righteousness. Don't confuse religiousness with righteousness. Herod could be religious, but he wasn't righteous. God challenges the people in the Old Testament. He says, your your self-righteousness is as filthy rags. A pile of dirty rags. Filthy rags. We've got to get our hearts right with God. Religiousness does not replace righteousness. Words are one thing, but lifestyle is another. Spirit's another. What in doctrines do you embrace? Critical is their obedience to the word of God. Let's talk secondly about Herod's heart can be seen. In his actions, in his words, and in the process. Like I mentioned, any Jew would probably want to be free from the Romans, and you would think that Herod was in a great place. That if they're free, he's now, he's, you know, political leader, he'll be, he could pro, whatever it was, but he didn't want to do that. That wasn't his agenda. God visits the wise men in a dream and tells them, don't go back to Herod and we'll touch on that a little later but it says when Herod realized that the wise men had outwitted him he was furious verse 16 he was Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him people who get upset because Jesus is going to interfere with them want to kill him He orders his soldiers to go down, round up all the young boys that are under two years old, and kill them. Because this was based on when the star first appeared. Now, to put that in perspective, just look around here. We got a number of cute little boys that are all under two years old. That'd be tragic. I'd be absolutely because he because he wants to kill Jesus. When Jesus is a threat, people then will lash out. Don't disturb my agenda. Don't disturb my peace with the word of God or the plan of God. The Pharisees would go on and want to kill Jesus. Till they finally got their chance. You know what put them over the edge, though, which fascinates me? 
in John 11 is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's a fascinating thing. He raises someone from the dead, verse 53 of John 11. So from that time forth, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. And they threw in for good measure, we better kill Lazarus as well. Right? They're, they're focused. You would think, here's someone risen from the dead. This comes after the John 9, 10 scenario where he heals a man who had been blind since birth. They kick him out of the synagogue. Don't interfere with our agenda. See, some people, when they hear the voice of God, they respond, they repent. Others, they get mad. They get angry. And then they hurt other people in the process. Our text goes on, verses 17 and 18 in Matthew 2. Herod's brutal action was fulfilled at what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A crying was heard in Ramah. Weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Someone wrote of this. They said, it's a hard concept. Rachel crying, refusing to be consoled. They've killed my children. They've killed my children. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, is born. It's hard to accept that the good news has such enemies. That some people, they really oppose themselves to what God wants to do. And it's tragic. Alexander, the coppersmith. We read of him in Acts chapter 19. That Paul is in Ephesus. And and as they're in Ephesus, there's some idol makers there and they began to say that Paul wants to ruin our business because you know what you you know he's preaching Christ and he's gonna cause people to not want to come here and and all of this kind of thing and so this big uprise starts that people move in and they go into the big auditorium the big coliseum of the city and you know not quite as elaborate the the glory of Rome was the coliseum in Rome but they all, but all cities had their coliseums or their arenas. This would be, you know, like uh, uh, the Blue Cross arena here, that they would all show up there or the armory or somewhere like that. They all went in there and they're chanting and the crowd's confused. They don't even know why they're there. They just know that, uh, I guess, Rent-A-Mob had been hired for that day. And so there they are. And so as they're there, Alexander, the coppersmith, he wants to go in and try to talk to the crowd. He wants to try to bring peace, and they stop him from going in. But later, Paul writes and says, Alexander the coppersmith, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, and the Lord will judge him for all that he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against me every uh, fought against everything we said. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. Many uh, may it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me, gave me strength so that I might preach the good news. 
in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear, he rescued me from certain death. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul actually writes and says, all of Asia. Now, that's really modern day Turkey. The churches that were there have turned against me. Many believe that Alexander had a tremendous underhanding mind, uh, had a hand in undermining that Paul's ministry. The tr- the agenda of God has enemies, people who try to stop. But what's interesting is it doesn't work. God's work goes on. God's work goes on. This is what we can learn. You know what? You're going to have people, they oppose you. I had a guy at work uh, I had witnessed to one time. Witnessed to this guy and, and uh, he didn't like it. And he made me the enemy. He was going to get me fired. He's the one who, uh, when I started working there, uh, they had pornography up on the walls and I had to go and empty trash cans. And he put one right on the door and I said, I'm not going in there. So you take that down. He goes, come with me. I'm going to get you fired. About an hour later, a memo came out that all the pornography was to be taken down off the walls. One for the good guys. True story, I was actually cleaning out a paint cabinet right above his office, and I picked up an old rusted can, and the handle broke, it smashed on the floor, the paint went right through the floor, right on his desk. My boss came to me, he goes, it's funny, (laughs) but I can't not tell you it's I can't say that. I got it, you know, what happened? And so I'm standing there with the rusted handle. I'm like, look, the can just, I picked it up and it disintegrated. He's like, oh, okay. I'm still surprised that the paint was wet in it, but whatever. Set out enemies. Time to time in churches, rebellions. People have agendas. Sometimes it can, persecution can come from without. We had a woman on Cape Cod. Her name was Karen Jeffries, worked for the Cape Cod Times, wrote a number of articles, front page articles about the Cape Cod church. Well, you know what I found out later? Karen Jeffries is a liar. We knew that then. She talked about my house. She'd never been to my house. In fact, we weren't living in a house. We were living in an apartment. She made it up. And eventually she got busted. What happened is there was an accident, and she quoted a witness. And the insurance company said, we want to talk to that witness. And she had to finally say, there was no witness. I made that up. God's plans won't be stopped. Both Joseph and the Magi get visited by God. In a dream. You don't go talk to that man anymore. You go to Egypt. Joseph takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt. The enemy cannot stop the purposes of God. Isaiah 57, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God will raise up a standard against them. 
the gates of hell shall not prevail. Even though there's a desire to stop Jesus, his plans will go ahead. Herod's death is tragic. Shortly after our text is actually when Herod the Great dies. He actually dies in Jericho. I have an excruciating, painful, putrefying illness of uncertain causes. Nobody's sure exactly what it is. In fact, they nicknamed it Herod's Evil. There are all sorts of theories on what this could be, whether it was anything from poisoning to syphilis. Drove him mad. We, they just don't know. Josephus, the historian, states that the painful illness that led Herod actually made him consider consider stabbing himself to death, but the attempt was thwarted by a cousin. Josephus also states that, that Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death because... What happens to selfish people is that they think they're more important than they really are. He commanded that a large group of distinguished men come to Jericho, and he gave the order that they should be killed at the time of his death so that a displays of grief would take place all over the country. His brother-in-law Alex, Alex, Alexis, and his sister Salome did not carry out this wish. It is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. Fascinating to me that people like this never consider their own mortality. I was reading an interesting article of ten common factors that dictators, especially kind of crazy dictators, have. They make themselves godlike, and, and they were actually referring to modern dictators like Khomeini or Lukashenko, or the guy in uh, Uzbekistan and these kinds of things where they, they have this cult-like persona with them and different things that they do that are all common in these leaders. And one of them is the fact that they are always thinking that they're going to be important forever. King Herod would fade into eternity except for the portion of Scripture that we read about him. That's all we know about him. All his power, all his wealth. Still, couldn't stop the common factor that happens to all. We all die. I say that to make you consider that the thought of your mortality 
should make you want to be right with God. Life is just but a vapor. I mean, I was thinking about this. My, you know, my kids are in their 30s. My grandkids are now, you know, it's like, shoot, I was just in my 30s. I mean, literally, I'm thinking this. I'm like, that didn't seem that long ago. And yet it, the calendar don't lie. The calendar and the scale can be evil things, can't they? Just saying. But anyway, back to the sermon. Right? We're all, we all face mortality. It is good to live with the understanding. It's a, one man noted, according to uh, contemporary historians, Herod the Great perhaps is the only ancient figure in Jewish history that is loathed equally by the Jewish and the Christian posterity. We all have to face this. That this can happen. All his agendas, that didn't mean anything. They're all gone. It is when Herod dies and some of his other people die that Joseph is able now to move back. And doesn't go to Bethlehem, he goes to Nazareth. And raises Jesus there. Another thing you can mark down that we can take from Herod's life is the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Rebellion plays out in children. That is a tragic reality of life. That it was Ham that sinned against Noah. But it was Canaan that paid the price. Rebellion plays out. It's Herod's son that will have John the Baptist beheaded. Because John would tell him because he had had taken his brother's wife as his own, it was adultery. It was Simona that we just read about Herod's sister's stepdaughter there that dances and gets him all excited. And it wasn't just a nice little recital, by the way. It's very sensual. That he offers half the kingdom. These are the children of Herod, when it, when David commits adultery, he repents, and Nathan says the problem is the sword will never leave your home. It is after that there's rebellion. One brother rapes his half sister. Solomon ends up with thousand wives and concubines. That's a problem. All of this could have been changed if Herod had just been honest and repented. 
But he lies to the wise men. He lies to the religious men. He's lying to everybody. Had he just been honest. Strangers show up speaking of the Messiah. The scriptures, a star, the timing. He's not interested. He simply has his agenda and he goes on with that. Tim Keller is a famous Christian author. And he wrote this, and I, I just fascinated, and I'm closing with this. In a playful lexicon of religious terms entitled Particular Treasures, he quotes another author, Frederick Burek, Ber, Berchek, captured a very interesting interplay on the story of the Magi and King Herod. The foolishness of the wise is perhaps no better illustrated in the way that the three Magi went to Herod, the great king of the Jews, to find out the whereabouts of the holy child who had just been born king of the Jews to supplant him. It did not even strike them as suspicious when Herod asked them to be sure to let him know when they found found him so that he could hurry down and pay his respects. Lucky for the holy child that the three Magi followed the star to the manger, left their presence and were tipped off in a dream to avoid Herod like a plague on their way home. Herod was fit to be tied when he realized that they had been ordered to murder every male child two years old and under in the district. For the enormous power, he knew that there was something, someone in diapers still more powerful than him. The wisdom of the foolish is perhaps nowhere better illustrated. That here Herod misses it because he rejects Jesus. Now this is an ultimate rejection that many will not raise to this level to reject Christ. But they still reject him. They can be religious, but not righteous. I just fascinate in this that it all could have been changed if he simply repented. If he simply said, you know what? He's the Messiah. This is God's plan. Look at the book of Daniel. Look at the timing of this. Look at all of the, this is fascinating. This is it. And yet, wouldn't do it. Lost to history, probably lost for eternity. With the lesson we can take away from Herod is that even people can be in the midst of Jesus, but threatened by him. Don't be threatened by him. He's not the threat. He's not there to ruin your life. He's there to redeem and save and set free and bless. But if you're scared that he's going to mess up your agenda, which he will, you can know that he's got a far better agenda and that ultimately we can't stop and no one can. You've got people fighting against you. You've got people praying, witching, whatever, threatening. 
The plan of God goes forward. The will of God goes forward. God has his ways far above the king of Judah. He's going to help you. You're fighting different battles or even devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but sometimes they, you know, they actually do have a face and a name. It's a spirit behind it, but it's a face and a name. We can still, we win. But we have to understand God wants to help us. So you serve God. You do the best you can. God's going to help you. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. You're here tonight. You're not right with God. You can be religious, but not righteous. Not right with God. Not born again. Not changed by the Spirit of God. You can have religion. I know lots of people who are in church today. They're religious, but they're not right. Churches are full of people like that. Can even be in this place. I'm not naive enough to think that everybody walks through our doors. Yeah, they're perfect. But everyone else, you know. We can get our hearts right. This is the blessed, blessed part of the gospel that Herod never embraced. You can get your heart right tonight. Maybe you're here and you've come. You're not right with God. You're not saved. You're not born again. You're backslidden. You're religious, but you're not righteous. God wants to help you. That's you. Slip up your hand. Pray for me. I want to get my heart right. Anyone at all. Very quickly. Move on. To those of you who face Herod's, Maybe they're at work. Maybe they're a boss. Maybe they're a co-worker. Maybe they're a neighbor, a relative, whatever it might be. Know that God's plan will not be thwarted. His agenda, His purpose in the earth. If Herod, with all his wealth and all his power, couldn't stop the plan of God, can they be open to God let God speak to you let God help you God will direct you God will give you victory over them they do not win they can be consuming they can hurt they can cause problems but they don't win because God is bigger than the boogeyman whatever whoever that might be child saying is so true. Let's all stand. We're going to open up these altars allow people to find a place to